0: If you get around the evangelical world much, or listen to many different preachers, or listen to many different authors, you will soon discover, upon careful observation, that there are many different frameworks for the Christian life. For example, one famous preacher named John Piper has a statement, or an axiom, called uh, that goes like this, God is most glorified in us when. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. This statement sets the trajectory for his most popular book called Desiring God, which sets forth his worldview known as Christian hedonism, which is the pursuit of the greatest possible pleasure which is supremely found in God. John MacArthur's foremost book, he has many, but We'll call it his foremost book. The Gospel According to Jesus sets forward what he calls Lordship Salvation, and his book titled Slave further unpacks these views as the fundamental basis of his theology. Still, other men have written their, I looked this up, it's correct, their magnum opera, which is the plural of magnum opus, So many other men have written their magnum opera on countless other themes that they believe set forward the framework of the Christian's life. This can be quite confusing if you are a new Christian and you're reading all these different books and you're like, wait, what is it? What is the framework for the Christian's life? John Piper has his view, John MacArthur has his view, and R.C. Sproul has his view, and there's hundreds of other ways of framing the Christian's life. I have alphabetized two lists according to the broad headings of theology and practice or what you believe and what you do or orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So here's a number of other frameworks that some people think are the dominant framework for the Christian life. Starting first with theological ones in alphabetical order. Number one, covenant theology. Secondly, Christian apologetics, which could have its own multiple subcategories. Number three, creation science. Next, dispensationalism. Next, deeper life sanctification. You can't have that without responding with the alternative of law gospel. And then after the L section, we jump into the P's, postmillennialism. Everything is about postmillennialism. Well, the other crowd says, well, actually, it's about premillennialism. Then there are some people who are revivalists. And after the revivalists, you need to hear from those who hold to Reformed theology. And then jumping back into the revival movement, you have folks whose dominant theme is the Holy Spirit. And then those who are a little more calculated prefer the healthy church as their framework. The more sophisticated prefer the sovereignty of God as their framework. And those introductory cage stage Calvinists prefer the five points of Calvinism as the dominant theme of their Christian life. And no sermon is worth preaching unless the five points of the sermon are the five points of Calvinism. And last for my theological list in honor of Sinclair Ferguson is union with Christ. So, which is it? What is the theme of the Christian life? Well, we also have not only what you believe, but the second option could be what you practice. So, some people think that the Christian's worldview needs, needs to be framed around conspiracies. Remember, we're starting at the beginning of the alphabet, so we're in the C section. Notice I didn't say conspiracy theories, I'm just saying conspiracies. Secondly, cultural transformation. we got to renew this culture. Or at least get rid of abortion. Next, emotionally healthy spirituality. Raise your hand if you've been to a church that's all about emotionally healthy spirituality. None of you? It's like a thing. This is a proper term. This is like desiring God or lordship salvation. Emotionally healthy spirituality is the name of a book. A very, very famous book written by a very, very famous pastor from Queens. He's like the Tim Keller of Queens, basically. His name is Pete Scazzaro. Lots and lots of churches use his course, his curriculum, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Basically a blend of um, psychology and light charismatic theology. After E, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, we have fasting. You ever met someone who's just like, oh, well, I'm going to be fasting for the month of whatever from this thing or that thing or food or social media. Then there are people who are Passionately committed to home church and everything goes back to, well, the churches these days are too big. And if you had a home church like my home church that has six people in it, then we would really be doing Christianity the right way. After the home church people, there's the homeschooling people. There is no other way to educate your children. If your kids are in a public school, even if your public school is in Greenville, South Carolina, and all the teachers are Christians, or it's a public school in Moscow, Idaho, and all the teachers are members of a CREC church, you still need to get them out of the public school. And after the homeschoolers, tied with this whole thing, is the people who are all about head coverings, and every single argument lands back on head coverings. And after the H section, we'll jump up to the P section. Hopefully, I'm still in alphabetical order. I haven't triple-checked these. But we have, then, the paranormal. I had a great conversation with John Benzinger this week about, or yesterday, about paranormal things. And I told him about my lovely trip to Ohio, where we went to the most haunted site that the the expert on the podcast had ever been to. Well, we. we, I I went. Um, And, yeah, some weird stuff happened. But you'll have to check my Twitter to see the video to, to hear my experience. And then John said, oh, well, you should see what was going on in my office on Sunday night at 10 p.m. I got it on video from my ring camera. And I was like, well, tell me, tell me more right now. After the paranormal, we'll leave you hanging on that. So if you if you want to know, you'll just have to ask me later, I guess, Um, because he sent me the video. And it's it's, um, if you're into this sort of thing, you'll find it interesting. Um, After paranormal, we have patriarchy. Everything's about patriarchy. There's definitely no way that could be abused or misused or overdone. Like, don't let your wives read theology or anything else. Uh, After patriarchy, you have the personal spiritual disciplines people. The personal spiritual disciplines people are the reformed version of the emotionally healthy spirituality people. So the personal spiritual disciplines people, their guy is Don Whitney, Professor of mine from Southern Seminary, because he wrote that book called Personal Spiritual Disciplines or Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And then after Personal Spiritual Disciplines, still in the P section, we have prayer. You know, the people that are all about prayer. They don't have a clue what they believe about theology, but they just pray and pray and pray. And then after prayer, you have social activism. And then there are people that are all about submission. Surrender. And then I put obedience in the same section because I wasn't sure what to do with it. But, you know, it's just all about submission. Well, you just need to submit more, surrender more, obey more. And then in the W section, the weekly communion people. Well, your problem is you just don't do weekly communion at your church like the early church did. And by the way, do you use real wine? And you need to use one loaf of bread and you dare not dip it in the wine because intinction is unholy. Intinction is when you dip it in the cup. And then after weekly communion, then there are the people who are committed to the topic of worship. Worship. So they make everything fall under the category of worship and then spend a lot of time saying that actually worship is not just the music, even though they put music notes on the front of their books and it's all just worship this, worship that. So what is the Christian life all about? I could easily give you 10 examples for each of these 25 or so things that I listed, and we could just have like 250 different books or topics or subheadings about the Christian life. Tonight's lesson is designed to help you think about a framework for the Christian's life. I will not attempt to tie all of these points together that I just listed or to answer all of the possible questions you could have, but rather just to propose a framework that is not necessarily any better than the others, but I think that it encompasses what it needs to encompass. And that is the three the three points of tonight's lesson, which are number one, the Christian's new life, number two, the Christian's old life, and the Christian's eternal life. So if we're talking about the Christian's life, we'll go from the beginning of their spiritual life until the beginning of their time in the presence of Christ. So, number one, the Christian's new life. The Christian's new life. The Christian's new life begun. So we have a slide for this. There we go. Uh, Number one, election. We're not going to attempt to go as in-depth in these things. The point of tonight's lesson is to tie together much of the content from the last seven weeks in something of an overview fashion for new believers. So, the Christian's new life. When a person becomes a Christian, why did they become a Christian? Well, in a ultimate sense, they became a Christian because God chose them for salvation before the world began. The Christian's new life was planned before time began. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us in love for the adoption as sons. He elected us. He chose us. He predestined us. Those words all mean the same thing. And he did that. He chose us before we were. If you're like me, you were born in the 1990s. God chose me before the 1990s. He chose me before time itself. And if you're a Christian, he chose you before time itself. The Bible uses the word foreknew or foreknown, which is really that he foreloved us. He foreloved you. He loved you before you existed. He knew you. When he thought of Trenton Hargraves, he thought of this person right here. Like he he knew his fingerprints. He knew what color his hair was going to be. He had set all of those things his strengths, his weaknesses, where he would be born. He foreknew him, he knew him beforehand, and he loved him before he was born. And because he loved him, he foreknew him, he loved him on that basis, he chose him. Not because of good in him, but because of his choice. That's the message from Deuteronomy 7. Why did God choose you, Israel? He chose you because he chose you. Not because you're good, not because you're big, not because you're better, not because you have more people or more money or more strength or less sin. No, he chose you because he chose you. And if that's not satisfying to you, I would invite you to read Romans chapter 9 and to hear Paul's response, which is, who are you to answer back to God? This is simply what God has done. So, we need to move very quickly, because I think I have 11 pages of notes. And I have a list of 35 items at some point in the notes, so we're going to have to go through that very quickly as well. So, number one, election. Number two, salvation. Salvation from sin, death, and hell. When we are saved, we are saved from the wrath of God by God through his son, Jesus Christ, through Jesus' sinless life, substitutionary death, and victorious resurrection. So when he chooses us, he's choosing us for salvation, and salvation is what I just read, that paragraph. Beyond salvation, the way you actually experience salvation is through a thing called point three, conversion. Conversion. A person is converted when they become a Christian, not just from a pagan religion to the truth of the gospel, but when they're converted from death unto life, even while growing up in a Christian home. These children need to be converted. My son, Andrew, needs to be converted, even though you might think he is a sweet little angel. And he might be a sweet little angel depending on the hour of the day. He still, nevertheless, needs to be converted. Point four, the new birth, being born again. The expression, quote, born again Christian, close quote, is perhaps not as popular as it once was, but it is nevertheless as necessary as ever. It is a biblical term. You can look in John 3 for that. Every man or woman who is born needs to experience the new birth. They need to be born a second time, which should raise certain questions, which are the questions that are addressed in John 3. How can a man be born when he is old? I've already been born once, And then Jesus responds, well, this is impossible in your own strength. So in other words, you can't. So you need to come to the end of yourself and then cry out to God to make this happen. The reason you need to be born again is because you are born in sin. Every human is a sinner because they have inherited Adam's sin. So they need to be born of God with a new father. They need a new life. They need heaven's life. They need the heavenly life or eternal life in them. They need the life of God in their heart. They need to be begotten of God. Begotten is a kind of a, an older term, but it's used in the Bible to refer to, to refer to these things. Point five, regeneration. Regeneration is the theological term for being born again, for the new birth, to be born. Regenerated to have, so you've got something being generated, like generating your document when you try to change it from a PDF to a Word document. Well, to be regenerated is to be given new life. Point six justification to be justified is to be legally counted righteous in Christ, it is to receive imputed righteousness. This imputed righteousness is a gift righteousness. It's something you do not earn. You cannot earn it. Rather, you receive it as a gift. This gift righteousness is credited to your spiritual account, your invisible heavenly account with the record books in heaven. There is a credit transfer that takes place where the righteousness of christ is credited to your account as part of what we call the great exchange and in the great exchange the sinner's sin is taken from their account and placed onto jesus's account and his perfections are taken from his account and put onto your account and so you are counted righteous in christ think of it like a banking situation if there were two trenton hargraves One is very rich and the other is very poor. And the banker gets them mixed up and says, oh, I'll take your $10 million deposit and I'll put them, I'll click right here and put it on Trenton's account. And then Trenton goes to the bank to withdraw $5 to buy something for $5. (laughs) I'm trying to think. There's nothing you can buy for $5 in Biden's America. But um, nevertheless, he clicks and sees his uh, the amount of money that he has and he's like, "Whoa, I have $25 million. Where did this money come from?" Well, there was a credit transfer. There was a record transfer that some paperwork that got switched. When you become a Christian and you receive this justification, you receive the imputed righteousness of Christ, which is a lot better than receiving $25 million credited to your account. Though that would be pretty nice. Justification is better than that. Now, the way that that actually happens as part of this conversion situation is you receive it through repentance and faith. Repentance and faith are two sides of Two different sides of the same coin. That is turning of the mind from sin and self, sin and self-righteousness, and turning to Christ by faith. So faith is the looking to Christ. Repentance is looking away from the sin and your self-righteousness. So repentance and faith is the way in which you receive this gospel. It's the way you receive this new life. And point eight, adoption. There are more things that we could say, but adoption here. Adoption is being legally brought into a new family. Legally bringing someone into a new family is adoption. So this person who's adopted receives a new family, a new name, a new identity. They also receive an inheritance. They receive the wealth or the resources or the assets or the debt of the family adopting them. Now, in this case, God has no debt. He just has riches. And when he adopts you, you get all the riches of Christ as well. You also receive the spirit of adoption, whereby you cry to God, Abba Father. So what that means is now you have a relationship to God as your father. And suppose that you maybe don't have the best relationship with your earthly father. Well, you're not to project that bad relationship onto your, relation, to, to your image of God, but Rather, to take a step back and recognize, as one adopted into the family of God, I have received his spirit and that spirit of adoption, which cries out, just put, put your American experience on pause for a second and rewind a couple thousand years to ancient Israel and think of the term Abba. Now, the term Abba is still used today. I was in Israel this spring, and on the airplane, I saw a little kid who was about the same age and size as my son. And he looked up at his father, and he said, Abba, Abba. And it was like heart melting. It was so touching to see that. It's this term, Dada, Daddy. It's what you would teach the smallest of baby to call you, as their daddy, to call you Abba. It's a term of trust, of reliance, of of intimacy, of love, of relationship. And so when you are adopted into the family of God, you, you become God's child in two ways. Number one is through the new birth, and number two is through adoption. So you have in this new birth, you have his his, uh, DNA, his genetics, his life in you, but then you legally also have it through this legal adoption. So hopefully that, that, that should encourage you that you are secure in Christ, you're secure in this relationship. So that's number one, new life begun. Number two, new life proclaimed, new life proclaimed. The way you proclaim this new life, that you are a Christian, the Christian's profession of faith, or where they go public as a Christian, both biblically and historically, traditionally, is through baptism. Baptism has been the rite or ritual that proclaims this person is a Christian. Their sins have been washed away. They have been united with Christ. They are an heir of the kingdom of God. They are part of the body of Christ. Traditionally, that has been through baptism. Not merely, take some shots at the Presbyterians right now, not merely, we wish that this person may at some point in the future become a Christian, but rather in baptism, they're not just saying, oh, this is a promise that this person will become a Christian, but traditionally, baptism has been something that says, no, this person is a Christian. And so in that, the Baptists and the Roman Catholics and, and Anglicans have the same message being communicated, which is this person Is saved. So it was actually a new version of infant baptism that uh, Presbyterians developed by saying, well, this person isn't saved, but we hope they'll become saved, but they're part of the covenant, but they're not regenerate. Like that was, that's the new kid on the block that's only existed for a couple hundred years. All the rest of church history baptism has said, this person's a Christian. Now we know that the little bit of water, whether it's a little or a lot, that that doesn't actually save a person, but rather it proclaims the reality that already exists. Therefore, we practice believers' baptism. Baptism does not actually wash away sins, but it symbolizes the washing away of sins, but it's been biblically, theologically, and historically so closely, uh, closely associated with the washing away of sins that that's the reason why it says things in the Bible like baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. It symbolizes the washing away of sins that has truly taken place by the Holy Spirit in Conversion. Therefore, this ritual of baptism should follow after salvation, but it should not follow so far, delaying for decades until the person approaches death. Then getting baptized on their deathbed as a last-minute fire insurance policy. That's not the right way either. Rather, a person who is saved should get baptized to go public with their being on Team Jesus new life proclaimed in the, I don't know the exact decade, but let's just say 1850s. Um, a guy named Charles Finney was, uh, a revivalist. You remember my list earlier about revival being one of them. Charles Finney popularized this. He's the founder of revivalism and he spent a lot of time in upstate New York in the Finger Lakes area and really just all across upstate New York. And he, um, popularized and developed the altar call. So an altar call, they they would call, uh, they would have like a communion table down front and they would call that the altar. And um, it kind of looks like an altar in the sense of like, if you've ever seen a spot where they do sacrifices. And so at the end of the service, he would tell the person, hey, if you, if you want to become a Christian, come down to the altar and pray this prayer. This prayer being the sinner's prayer, which he also kind of, popularized. And so um, he would he developed ways to kind of manipulate people and twist arms into getting lots of crowds of people to come forward and to repeat this prayer after him at the altar. And so that became sort of the new way to make a profession of faith. But up until that point, that was not the way people professed their faith. They professed their faith in baptism. So if they had come to believe in Jesus, but not yet been baptized, the understanding was, well, they haven't yet professed faith. But now in a post-Charles Finney era, you you had such a thing as an unbaptized Christian. Whereas before that, for the 1800 years prior to that, there was no such thing as an unbaptized Christian. If you weren't baptized, you're not a Christian. If you weren't baptized, you hadn't proclaimed you were a Christian. Let's keep moving. So after new life proclaimed, we have new life sustained. In the Christian life, when a person is saved and then baptized, they now become a target of a very real being, a very real entity, which we call the devil. The devil or Satan. Once you come out of the closet as a Christian, you come out and I say, hey, I'm on team Jesus. Now you get a target on your back. And that target on your back can at times be kind of big. And so the Christian life has begun, which means now a spiritual war has begun as well. Because you have switched teams, you went from darkness to light. You went from being a a child of the devil to being a child of God. You went from being a friend of Satan to being an enemy of Satan and an enemy of God to being a friend of God. Now... You're on his hit list. Now you're on the most wanted list for Satan. So in order to be prepared for that, you need to get equipped. You need to put on God's armor. Or as Ephesians 5 says, I think 5 or 6, it says, put on the whole armor of God in order to then be equipped for the battle that has begun. You can get equipped or don't get equipped, but the battle has begun. And if you're not equipped, it's going to be bad. It's going to be brutal. Which then leads naturally into point two, suffering. Your new life needs to be sustained. And it needs to be sustained in the face of incredible warfare. And your faith needs to be, your life needs to be sustained through the suffering that is sure to follow. The Bible says all that desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. Persecution is just one form of suffering. There's physical persecution. There's spiritual persecution. Then there's also physical health problems. There's emotional problems. There's financial problems. There's all sorts of problems that you will experience. And in order to be sustained through that suffering, you need help. You need to be equipped lest you be tempted to despair. Now, God does not leave us alone in our warfare or in our suffering, but he gives us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be present. He will be present to comfort you and to guide you and to teach you and to help you. He's promised never to leave you or forsake you. Jesus said before he left the earth, he told his disciples that he would send his Holy Spirit. And he has. So spirit will be with you to comfort you and to guide you. So ask him for help. When you feel completely overwhelmed, when you feel as though you cannot take any more bad news, you feel like your life is taking a week out of the book of Job. And you're like, what now? You find yourself literally answering your phone saying, what now? And the poor person on the other end of your phone, they weren't responsible for your previous five bad phone calls. But they are on the receiving end of you saying, yeah, what? What now? But when you find yourself in those kinds of situations, ask the Lord for help. Ask the Holy Spirit for comfort, for guidance. It's not just the Holy Spirit, though. You also have the body of Christ. You have the promises of God. You have Christ himself. John 15 Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The way this life is sustained is through the Holy Spirit Through the promises of God, through abiding in Christ, the way it is enriched, then moving on to point D, our new life is enriched, our new life grows, not merely just hanging on or hanging on by a thread, but actually being enriched and growing and flourishing in this new life is through what we call the means of grace. The means of grace. Now, you could make a very long, very creative list of the means of grace, but this is sort of a bare bones list because we have very long other lists on tonight's lesson. So, the means of grace, the way in which God gives grace to you. What are those pipelines? What are those channels of blessing that the Lord gives? Well, the first one that I've listed here is the word, the word of God, the Bible. There are lots of verses in the Bible about the Bible, but John 17, 3 is one of the ones you need to know. And it says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. To be sanctified means to be made holy. To actually be changed. You in your sinful self, to become less sinful and more like Jesus, comes through the word of God. If you want to learn a thing, you might be smart to get some books about that thing. I've spent more time in Barnes and Noble in the last month than I have the last year. I've, it's not been a ton. I just went three times. I went to three different locations because I'm looking to see if they have my book. And none of them have, but it's in the warehouses. So I'm told that I can request it. So I did request it at each spot. And they said they will email me when it comes in. But they haven't emailed me yet. So um, it's not in Upper West, not in Union Square. And it's not in uh, the Midtown 45th Street location. Nevertheless, I spent lots of time just wandering around looking at books because I like books. And so I'm seeing all these interesting things that I know nothing about and thinking, well, that would be cool if I could just pause everything and become an expert in the geography of india or the history of india or the religious like what's the difference between hinduism and buddhism and the history of i don't know that much about those things but you want to know god you want to know how to be sanctified you want to know how to be like christ well he's given us a book and it's called the bible so the first and primary means of grace given to us is the word of God. Secondly, to honor the Presbyterians that I have been hating on lately, we will say sacrament second. So we've got a word and sacrament in Andy's non-existent Scottish accent. So the sacraments as a means of grace, I do believe they are. Well, then why aren't you practicing communion every single week? Well, it's because I believe in fencing the table, because I believe in regenerate membership, not just all y'all who live in this zip code got baptized as babies, so you're all coming to the table every single week. It's a lot easier to do that when you're not concerned with whether or not these people are Christian because you just sort of assume them to be Christians. Nevertheless, sacraments are means of grace. What are the sacraments? Well, in Protestant Baptist theology, we have two Baptism in the Lord's table. Baptism is a means of grace in a variety of ways, but the most obvious one is that it marks you out as a Christian. And so now, through baptism, you become part of the body of Christ. You become part of the community, or the covenant community, if you want to use that language. And that is an incredible source of blessing. Using the pipe metaphor, that is hooking up a pipe from the body of Christ into your Yourself, And so through that, that's going to be an incredible means of grace in your life. And that comes through baptism. Through the Lord's table, well, there's a variety of views on this, and we're not going to spend 40 minutes talking about different views on the Lord's table, but either through the memorial view or the spiritual presence view, either one, this is very much a means of grace. And when you tie either the memorial view, where we remember Christ, or the spiritual presence view, where you say Christ is with us while we are partaking of this, either one of those, when attached to meaningful membership and close communion, there is actual tangible effect in this that could be measured, like you could chart it out if you wanted to. When you tile these things together, it's not simply just thinking really hard about Jesus, though it includes that. There's more to it than that when they're all tied together. The next one prayer. Prayer. Prayer feels as though it is you asking God to do things for you, but it's actually not so much God moving as it is you moving. It is your heart in your grappling with God, in your wrestling with God. If you're praying biblically and you're taking your still sinful heart and then pressing through it, like one of those um, hydraulic press videos on Facebook, you're pressing through your sinful heart, the promises of God, the word of God, and what's actually happening is you're being changed. Using a boat and a dock metaphor, you being the boat and God being the dock and the rope being prayer in between, you're tugging, but actually that rope is getting tightened up and you're being drawn near. Prayer. Fifth, fellowship. We referenced this a few moments ago with the local church metaphor, but fellowship. Fellowship is is the relationships within the body of Christ and through just ordinary interactions, through regular conversations over lengthy periods of time. We're talking hours. We're not talking, oh, well, we're going to have a five-minute fellowship. That's why we don't do the little 30-second handshaking time in the middle of our service. Hey, turn and greet one another. It's time for some fellowship. No, I hate that. We don't do that here. That's the reason why I planted my own church, is so I wouldn't have to do that. I'm joking, but I'm not joking. Whenever I visit a church and they do that, I'm just like, all right, how, how long is this going to be? So you got a little countdown clock on the screen, and then you're trying to figure out how to budget your time, because I don't want to go walking down the aisle to go find someone else to me. I just want to greet these people right around me. And if I have 90 seconds, then I need to spend a certain number of seconds per person Otherwise, if I spend all my time talking to one person and then the other person here, they turn at the 85-second mark and they want to shake my hand. And, we, and you just feel incredibly awkward about it. Or so at least I do. I don't know if, based on how you're wired, if, you, if that even phases you. But I don't like that. Because it's also not fellowship. But fellowship happens on a fishing boat. Fellowship happens... At a ball game, it happens in a living room, it happens while eating chips and salsa, it happens while going hiking, it happens while standing in front of Planned Parenthood, it happens all over the place. Fellowship is one of the most powerful ways in these ordinary conversations where one believer is talking to another believer and, and you're just sharing. Something that has been on your mind lately or something that God has taught you. It's one of the most powerful ways to actually apply the word of God in our lives when you're speaking with someone else and you're like, oh wait, so that's what that means. It's not so scripted. It's not scripted at all. People who are very type A are very uncomfortable with that. In my previous church, there was uh, one girl who, I don't know what the issue was, but she definitely had some kind of issues. She did not want to be in a small group where we sat around in a circle and shared our burdens and prayer requests to pray for each other. At the end of the first one, she's like, what is this, like group therapy? I said, I don't know, I've never been in group therapy, but maybe that's like upsetting to you that you could actually share your burdens with each other without having to pay $100 an hour. Point six, suffering. Suffering is not just under the new life sustained point, which it is, um, but you need your new life to be enriched. And one of the ways in which God will enrich your life, one of the ways in which God will grow you is through suffering. He will actually bring suffering into your life. He will ordain suffering. Like, let's say you spent the first 25 years of your life praying for one particular thing. God, I just want my life to go a certain way. And then when you're 26 years old, God answers that prayer and he answers with a no. He says, no, I'm going to give you the opposite of that. The opposite of the only thing you've ever wanted in your entire life. And so God is using that answer of a no to your prayer, to bring suffering in your life in order to deepen your walk with Him, to increase your dependence on Him, to grow your capacity for understanding His glory and His majesty and His greatness, to expand your ability to care for other people, to relate to other people who are suffering, to expand your ability to understand the Word of God as you read books like the book of Job, which before that bad thing happened, you really couldn't even point to a hardship in your life. So God uses and ordains suffering for the Christian's growth. All right, now this is our monster point, so we're going to, I don't know what we're going to do with it, but point E, new life fulfilled. How do you have a full Christian life? How do you have the proper Christian life that's, that's what God has ordained or envisioned or, or, or dictated to us? He's told us in his word what the Christian life is supposed to be like. Well, I'm glad you asked. We have 35 points. 35 points. We're going to spend a little bit of time on the first 15 and then not spend very much time on the last 20. In the Bible, there's a thing called the one another's. And this is a list of those. If you want the full treatment, you can buy Stuart Scott's book on this, which is listed in the resources tab on the app under this week's label. So if it sounds like I'm reading from a book well, I am, and he's my source. So number one, be devoted to one another. Be devoted to one another with brotherly love. This reminded me of a song, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. When I was in college, my brother Peter got incredibly sick, I think sophomore year. I don't know what he had, but I do know he was in bad shape and he went to the hospital for like a week. And if you know Woodards, you know that Woodards don't go to the hospital. We just deal with it. But Peter went to the hospital. And this is at college, at Bob Jones of all places, like they don't give you days off. You don't. You, if you skip class, you get demerits. Demerits are not good. You don't want those. So Peter missed a week of classes and is just like, <laughs> it's not good. And not only was he sick. But he was getting more and more sad and discouraged through all of this as well. Because not only is he not feeling, nah, sure, he got like some excused absences or whatever. So he wasn't getting demerits for missing class. But nevertheless, he's in bad shape. And this was incredibly sad. And the hospital food was nasty. And there were just a lot of things about it that was very unpleasant. So he asked me to to bring him things. So I did. I went to see him every single day. And I brought him food from the dining hall, which was a serious upgrade from the hospital food. And then for whatever reason or way, I thought of this song, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. Now, I'm not going to sing it for you. And I don't have the lyrics to it listed here in my notes. But the gist of the song is there's this kid who's being carried by his brother. And they're like, oh, isn't he heavy? And he's like, no. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. In some perverse... Negativity. One person has accused me of being willing to do anything for certain people. Andy, you do anything for them. Like, well, I can do anything for a lot of people. The Bible tells us to be devoted to one another with brotherly love. My brother would do anything for me. I mean, he did. He moved to New York to help us plant New Covenant Church, which eventually led to PBC. He personally bankrolled my expenses, our expenses, for our first year. You wouldn't be sitting here right now if not for Peter Woodard. He has a tremendous devotion to me. I have a tremendous devotion to him. That's supposed to be normal for the Christian life to be devoted to one another. Number two, outdo one another in showing honor. What this means is to give special weight or value to someone. Stuart Scott's illustration about this is being quick to listen when others are speaking. The easiest way that anyone can show honor to anyone else is by listening when they're talking. And the easiest way to show dishonor to someone is by ignoring them when they're talking. Or a more polite way to put it. Listen when they're speaking instead of just waiting for an opportunity to turn the conversation back to yourself. outdo one another in showing honor. This can make people very uncomfortable, both the recipient of the honor and then other people looking on because they're like, "Ah, I don't like it when you say nice things about people. We got business to do here. Well, the business of the Christian includes outdoing one another and showing honor. Point three, living in harmony with one another. Stuart Scott says this command goes against our pride. Why? Because if we're trying to win We're trying to make sure that we look good in all possible circumstances. We might not actually be living in harmony with one another. He specifically says, don't seek to be the devil's advocate. Don't look to delight in arguments or debate. But instead, seek to agree wherever you can. Illustration from college. So I have been reformed since I was 17. 17. I went to college when I was 18. I joined the church that I would end up at for three years, junior year of college. So I was 21. That was the first church I'd ever joined or been a member of because growing up, we just didn't do that. So I was in my dad's church my entire life. Then I went to college and then hopped around for two years, then joined this church my third year. It was not Reformed. I'd never been a member of a Reformed church. The pastor was not Reformed, and he told me that. And he said... He said that, but he said, I'd appreciate it if you don't make Calvinism a point of contention. And I told him, yes, sir. So you know what I did? I didn't make it a point of contention. (laughs) So for three years, I went to that church and more than half of those Sundays, I spent the entire afternoon, like the whole afternoon at his house with him and his family and sons-in-laws and all of them. And I didn't fight with him about Calvinism. Now, he would occasionally make jabs at me, but I would just sit there and take it because I knew I was right. And this is the dinner table, and I'm not here as a guest to win any debates as a smug 21-year-old with a 50-something-year-old pastor sitting at the head of the table with his four adult daughters and his two grandsons and me and my seven buddies all sitting around the table having a debate about when God chose people to be saved. And he'd make a little jab at me, and I'm just like, oh, I don't really want to argue about that. The Bible says live in harmony with one another. And so when the pastor says, hey, we're, we're actually not going to argue about this, your job is not to argue with him about arguing. Your, your job is to say, yes, sir. We'll not, I'll not bring this up as a point of contention. And I'm not saying that because I'm the pastor. I'm saying that because the Bible says it right here. Uh, So live in harmony with one another. Next, we need to go fast because this is going to be forever. Um, Do not judge, but build up one another. Scott says, one must be careful in thinking someone else is unspiritual or thinking what someone else does is unspiritual. Then he cites Romans 14. It's really easy to be really critical. It's really easy to judge other people. To look down your nose at the... Practices or preferences or opinions of other people and the Bible does actually contain Matthew 7, 1. That's the verse that says judge not. For the way in which you judge others. you, yeah, I understand. I've read it. Next point. Welcome one another. The Jew-Gentile distinction was an early source of conflict in the church but divisions around culture or financial status or personality type or appearance or age or food are are ways that Are constant ways where we are tempted to not welcome one another. Point six, instruct one another. A basic responsibility for the follower of Christ is to help others become followers of Christ. This involves teaching and instruction. From one who is more mature in their faith to invest in the lives of those who are less mature in their faith. For one who is more knowledgeable to teach one who is less knowledgeable. So that they will be able to do the same thing then to teach others. The seventh point that Scott lists is: Do not sue one another. <laughs> Ironically, I, I appreciate the guy. This is my first book I've ever read of his. I read fifty or sixty pages of it today. But Stuart Scott is is a seems to be a wise counselor. Counseling is a landmine laden topic, where people will just take a truth and then like bash you with it. But he actually spent a lot of time on this section about not suing one another and being like, well, you know, you actually do need to you need to stand against criminal conduct. And that might actually involve getting the authorities involved. So instead, he he actually didn't have any meaningful illustrations in this in this section. So I made up my own. Now, let's say a storm comes and blows a tree branch. Pretend like you're not in New York. okay? so we have like trees and yards and tree branches and dogs and dog houses. So. A storm comes, blows a tree branch, which falls down on your side of the fence. Your neighbor's tree falls on your side of the fence, which lands on your dog house. And it kills your prized purebred French bulldog. I looked up the most expensive dog breeds, and French bulldogs are in the top 20. So your dog, your prized purebred French bulldog is killed, and you are very angry about this. That tree has been rotting for years. You knew it was going to fall. They need to pay. Now, it just so happens that your next door neighbor is also your small group leader. What Paul would say here is, y'all need to figure out a way to work this out without going to court. Next, care for one another. This comes from 1 Corinthians 12, which we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, uh, referring to part of the body caring for the other um, when it is wounded, or the body caring for part of the body that is wounded or injured, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep. You can't care for what you don't know about, but it's also a two-way street. So, yes. One party is to ask, but the other party is to tell, to voluntarily tell. And I appreciate those who have told me things since I preached this message about burdens that they are carrying, that they need to share, things that I did not know about. It's your responsibility to tell your brothers and sisters in your life the things that you're experiencing so that they can help care for you. Next, point nine, do not provoke, do not envy one another. Related to provoking others to jealousy over matters of Christian liberty. So don't flaunt your liberty in the face of those that you know will be offended by the thing. And then the one who is tempted to jealousy or envying over this issue of Christian liberty, do not dwell on those things which tempt you to envy. You can actually choose what you think about. You can Point 10, bear one another's burdens. When you see a brother or sister carrying a heavy load or going through a difficult trial, and you have the ability to help them, then you should. Next, point 11, speak truthfully to one another. Jesus actually says, I am the truth. It is essential, it is necessary that we as Christians be people of the truth. The devil is the father of lies. Jesus is truth personified. So a Christian who lies is a contradiction in terms. It contradicts their new nature. It lies about who their father is. Christians should not lie. Now, perhaps you grew up in a home like mine where you had a father who, I'm not going to say he beat it out of me because he didn't beat me, but he impressed it using words that we are to not lie where he said, I don't care how much trouble you get in. I don't care whatever's going on. Don't lie to me. And the result is now like 30 some years later, I'm thinking about like something will happen or I'm trying to retell a story and In the back of my mind, I'm thinking about all the details of the story and thinking about how meticulously accurate I need to be in the retelling of the details of the story. And if I accidentally leave out something important, then I feel guilty about it later on. And I'm like, oh, I need to text that person and tell them it wasn't actually 753, it was 755. And if that's you, it's probably not you, but if that's you, you can just chill a little bit. But for the person who wants to completely twist a story, Or say something that's not even true. Recognize that Jesus is the truth and his children should walk in the truth and that Satan is the father of lies and his children walk in lies. So please do not lie because when you lie, you're lying about whose side you're on. Your actions are saying, if you're a Christian, but you lie, your your, your actions are saying you're actually on team Satan, not team Jesus. And even that's a lie about a lie. So speak truthfully to one another. Point 12, be kind to one another. There's a put off and put on pattern listed in Ephesians chapter 4. I'll read from verse 21 through 32. Uh, It says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, therefore having put away, you could chart these out and have a list if you wanted to put off and put on. So you put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity for the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. So put off stealing. Rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. So put off corrupt words, but only such as good for building up and fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. But remember, we're in point 12 here. Be kind. Verse 32 says, be kind to one another. So you put off bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice or malicious Speech and instead put on kindness, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Which leads us then naturally into our next point, 13, forgive one another. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. In the field of counseling, counseling literature, there's differences of view about the nature of forgiveness. Should you forgive everyone or should you wait for them to apologize or to say I'm sorry before you forgive them? Well, the Bible says forgive them as God in Christ forgave you. So let me ask a question. I'm not sure if my question fits right now, so let me go back to my notes and then bring it. The Bible instructs us in the ways where we're supposed to address sin committed against you. Number one, when someone sins against you, you're supposed to go directly to them, not go to someone else. So go directly to them and talk to them about what happened. If they confess their sin and repent, then you forgive them and it's over. If they don't, also keep in mind you could be wrong But if they don't, then number two, bring another Christian along and try to talk to them again. This process is described in Matthew 18 and Luke 17. Now, what if they don't repent? Do you still have to forgive them? Do you have to forgive people who don't apologize? Do you have to forgive people who don't repent or don't say, I'm sorry? Well, the Bible says, forgive as God in Christ forgave you. So let me ask you, do people who, do people get forgiven who don't repent? Let me ask it a different way. Does the Bible teach universalism? I'm with Howard on this, not Trent. The Bible says no. If you don't repent, you don't get forgiven. The Bible doesn't teach universalism. Universalism is the idea that everybody goes to heaven. So what this means is we don't forgive without there being Repentance. Because God doesn't forgive without there being repentance. That's why people go to hell. Because the wrath of God abides on them. Because their sins are still on them. So for our little selves. When someone sins against us and they don't apologize. And they're saying, look, I didn't do anything. Or I'm not wrong. Or what I did wasn't wrong. Or whatever. And you're like, well, it actually was. And here's a video of you doing the thing, and here's the Bible which says that when you did that thing, not just the interpretation of it, but the actual event, and this is clearly wrong, but they don't repent. You, so that you are not consumed with bitterness, should cultivate a heart posture of willingness to forgive. Of desire that they would repent. So that if someone comes to you and says, Well, you know, do you forgive that one who wronged you? You say, Well, I'm willing to forgive them. But for there to be forgiveness, they need to come to me and say, I was wrong. What I did was sinful with no, well, but this, or all these little side statements to, to, to diminish it, but to simply say, no, I was wrong. I own this. I did the wrong thing. I'm sorry for what I did. It was wrong. Will you forgive me? I'm willing to make it right. I'm willing to go to those people that I lied to about you. And I'm willing to go to them and tell them I lied to you about that person. So, when that takes place, yes, of course there's forgiveness. How could you not forgive someone who's willing to, to repent? Because that's what repentance means. To repent is to say, look, I don't care what the results are, I don't care what the consequences are. I'll come clean. I'll say, yeah, I did that thing. It was wrong. I'm sorry. So we should maintain a heart posture of willingness to forgive, but there actually isn't, there isn't forgiveness without repentance. So you should say, I'm sorry for what I did. It was wrong. Will you forgive me? When you say, will you forgive me? Then you should wait for their response. Now in our normal Christian life, there's a lot more offenses that are not quite so black and white and the person that you're apologizing to probably did something against you as well but you probably did something against them and so you can go to them and there's actually incredible power in apologizing but not apologizing in saying i'm sorry i was wrong apologizing is too clinical and sterile and void of actual sorrow but going to the person and saying i'm sorry i was wrong will you forgive me you in doing that are wielding an immense amount of power. Because now you're putting the ball in their court and you're just waiting to hear what they say. They don't have to forgive you, but as far as what you've done, you've done everything you can. And it's no longer a burden on your mind. This is very different from saying I apologize, which has a clinical sterility to it. Saying I apologize removes personal guilt from the equation. It's sort of like saying I'm sorry that you were inconvenienced, which is very different from saying I'm sorry for what I did. Now, sure, there will be times where you're like, I'm not sorry, and it's not my fault, but this person wants me to be sorry for something that I didn't do, and I need to put some kind of little clinical sterilized thing on it, so I'm going to say I apologize (laughs) Your dog got hit by a tree branch. No, you probably should actually be sorry about that. But even if it's not your fault, give them some real sorrow. So forgive one another. Yes, there's a category for forbearance and for, for, for um, love covering a multitude of sins. Yes, of course. And you can look at a thing or look at a person. You, you know that person. You love them. You care for them. And they did something that, like, yeah, that was kind of rude or they shouldn't have done that. But you know they didn't mean it. So you just put it in your mind as, they didn't mean it. And I'm going to let it go. That's a little different than what I've just spent the last number of minutes talking about, a of a genuine, significant offense. Um, moving forward, point 14. Be in submission to one another. This is not... According to Stuart Scott, and I agree, this is not the concept of mutual submission, which he says is neither taught in the Bible nor is realistic, but this is not a fantasy world without a hierarchy. Oh, we all just submit to each other. No, there are proper roles and responsibilities. This expression, to submit to one another, is an umbrella category, an umbrella expression, which includes... The scripture's instructions, such as wives submit to husbands, children submit to parents, submit to the leaders in the church, submit to the government. It's not teaching the idea that your four-year-old should have as much say in your family as you have as the parent. Oh, we're all just supposed to submit to each other, so I'm here to submit to my children to hear what they want or think. Your kid doesn't know anything unless you're teaching them. They're supposed to submit to you. Not saying you as the parent are never wrong, but this stuff is, is turned completely upside down in today's world. <clears throat> Point 15, bear with one another. This means putting up with one another's idiosyncrasies and their weaknesses. Not talking about overt, bad, serious sins but the unique quirks and odd things that we all have. If you're new or kind of new to our church, let me just say that if you stick around for long enough, you will find things about everyone in this room that you have to bear with, that you have to put up with. Perhaps it's a roommate or someone in your small group. We all have things that we do that annoy other people. Some time ago, someone pointed out that I have a, used to have a particular facial expression that involves when I would say, uh-huh, and I would kind of like nod my head in a weird way, and the, it was demonstrated to me, and I was horrified, and I've tried to stop doing it. I don't know that I've done it since then, but um, I would be so annoyed if I had to look at me doing that, and a whole bunch of y'all have had to look at me doing that. Or perhaps you have a weird thing that you say as like a a word or a filler word in your sentences. When you find yourself in an awkward conversation, you don't know what to say, so you say that thing, and then the other people in your small group have noticed that you have that funny saying or that expression, and they just kind of like chuckle to themselves because of your weirdness. We all have these, and the Bible calls us to bear with one another. Now, now, Again, Stuart Scott, in a wonderful way, says in, this, in his book that as much as we are able, we should seek to correct our own obnoxious characteristics that cause other people to not want to be around us. Because the thing is, we have these characteristics. Uh, there was once a young man in our church who d- clearly did not believe in using deodorant, and it was, it was bad. Like, like, like a cloud of stench around this person. And Alex Waddell bought this person a stick of deodorant and handed it to them <laughs> like and made a, made a statement about it. And then he told me about it. We need to be correcting our own things that we do that make life around us very difficult to tolerate. So we should be open to the possibility that we might not be perfect. Moving on. Point 16. Teach and admonish one another. 17. Increase and abound in love for one another. Next. Comfort one another. Next. Encourage and build up one another. Be at peace with one another. Seek good for one another. Pray for one another. Stir up one another to love and good works. Do not speak against one another. Do not grumble against one another. Confess your sins to one another. Be hospitable to one another. Serve one another. Be humble toward one another. Greet one another, have fellowship with one another, do not deprive one another, wait for one another, consider one another, and do not lie to one another, which is a lot like speak the truth to one another. Now we are through with point number one, which is one-third of tonight's message, and its nine oh eight. so we will go quickly. The Christian's new life, now the Christian's old life. So, you become a Christian, you have the new life. Well, what happened to your old life? Well, you need to put your old life to death. We call this mortifying sin. How do you kill sin? Well, it starts obviously starts with salvation, all the things we already talked about. But this actual action of putting to death our sin starts with your mind. Romans 6.11 says, so you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from, the, from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So what this means is that victory over sin comes after salvation has taken root through a change in mindset. This mindset must be continually renewed according to the word of God, not according to some random person's opinions or some wives' tales from like your great-grandmother who doesn't actually read the Bible, but well, she's got her like Joyce Meyer book. No, victory over sin comes through changing of your mind according to the word of God. So, first off, you must no longer consider yourself a slave to sin. This is the most basic, most obvious problem that Christians have with AA. Hi, my name is Andy and I'm an alcoholic. Well, if you're a Christian, that's not your identity, That sin, that vice, which used to control you, no longer is your defining identity. So the passage Howard just referenced from what 1 Corinthians 6, 11, 12, 13, it says, all these things you used to be and such were some of you, but you've been washed, justified, sanctified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when you're in Christ, you should not view those sins of your past life as your identity. So you should no longer consider yourself a slave to sin, but instead think of yourself as a slave to righteousness. I'm owned by Jesus. I have a new name, a new family, a new identity. I've been adopted into his family. I've been an heir of the kingdom of God. I have all these promises of God, all the things we talked about in point number one, the first part of point number one. So my illustration, think of my old baseball team versus my new baseball team, the Bodega Cats versus the Weekend Warriors. On the Bocats, we viewed ourselves as warriors, as losers, not warriors. Losers. Why did we view ourselves as losers? Can someone answer this? Cuz we were losers. <laughs> Our record at the end of the season was something like 2 and 25. It was around 2 wins. There might have been a third in there somewhere, but it was no more than 3. And it was around 25 losses with a couple of rainouts mixed in. So what, what, what would happen on any given day when we're going to the ballpark, we're thinking, well, let's just not lose by too many runs. We know we're going to lose, but let's like not lose by 20. It was bad. It was like 25 to nothing. Like that happens sometimes. So we, maybe let's only lose by 10 because we knew we're going to lose. Why? Because <laughs> we're the worst team in the league. Now, um my new team the warriors we view ourselves as winners this is not through some like rah rah speech that i gave no we just went out and we won and we won game after game after game after game after game we lost on easter and then we won and won and won and won so we ended up going 25 and 2 25 wins 2 losses What starts to happen as you're in the middle of that? Well, you start expecting to win. And beyond that, you start expecting to win by 10 runs or more. You start expecting, well, we're just going to strike everybody out. Why? Because Frandy's pitching and that's what he does. He strikes everybody out. Out of 15 outs, he got 12 of them through strikeouts. Two of them were automatic outs when that spot in the lineup with no batter in it came up. So those were out-out. And then the third out was a cot stealing that our catcher did. Jose with the Angelo's Restaurant. So what happens, you start to have this confidence. Now, in the baseball situation, it's a confidence in yourself, your your skills, your ability. In the Christian life, it is confidence in what Christ has done. Objectively, he did on the cross, and then subjectively, he's done this in your life. He's, He's saved you. He's changing you. He's renewing you. In the Christian life, we must not view ourselves as slaves of sin, but rather we should view ourselves as dead to sin and alive to Christ. This is much more than positive thinking, and it's quite different from manifesting. Nevertheless, a change in our mindset is essential. We must change our way of thinking about ourselves. Oh, well, I'm just an addict. I just, I can't, I can't like shake this thing. Well, you have the Holy Spirit's help. You have his indwelling presence. You have the Bible, which reveals God's mind. You have the local church. You have the body of Christ. You have the songs, the panoply of God. You have the full armament of God's resources at your disposal. So number one, put to death. Number two, raised to life, resurrection life. Our old life is crucified in Christ, and our new life is, is begun in Christ's resurrection. His resurrection life is in us. The fact that Jesus came out of the grave means that we, who are in him, have that life in us. We haven't even begun to grapple with what that actually means, especially in terms of, of reckoning that to ourselves where you, you consider your old man, your old self dead to sin and your new self alive in Christ. I just spent a little bit of time talking about considering yourself no longer a loser, but now you're a winner and you're going to win and all this stuff. But, but what if we really spent some time on what it means that the resurrection of Christ, his life is in us. We're going to sing a song on Sunday called uh, the Jenny and Tyler song. Um, See the Conqueror. The last verse of that song has this line in it that perplexes me every single time. And I've sung it since 2018, 2017. It says, thou hast raised our human nature. And I'm like, what does that mean? Every single time I sing, I'm like, what does that mean? But it goes on to answer what it means in the next line. Thou hast raised our human nature to the something at God's right hand. There we see in heavenly, there we sit in heavenly places, something, something in glory stand. What's that from? I think it's from Colossians where it says, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. How can that be? It's speaking in this present tense. This is something that's happening. We are seated in the heavenly places with Christ at the right hand of God's throne. Because we are in him. Now, you might think you're, you're here. You're in Rock Church. Well, you're actually in Christ. So you're seated with him. If that's the case, why do we have so much foolishness in our lives? Because we do. Well, it would do us a bit of good to consider ourselves to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. So we've been raised to life. Um, we can be as confident in this life, Jesus's life in us and for us, as we can be confident that Jesus is not going to die again. Right? Jesus isn't going to die again. He died. He rose. He's with the Father. He's not going like, to have a heart attack. He's not going to die suddenly. He's not going to get too many vaccines and just drop. No. He's alive. He's good. He's safe. He's not going anywhere. And as safe and secure as Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, so safe and secure are you in Christ with his life in you. Because he's not going to die. He's not going like, to get stabbed by the Romans. He's in heaven. So that should do something for us. That should embolden us. It should give us confidence in, in, in him, not arrogance in ourselves. Moving on, this mortification and resurrection process, this death and resurrection, this considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ, this is a process that is a repeated cycle throughout the entire Christian life. So let's say, suppose, bear with me for a second, let's say that you've heard something tonight that you recognize is true, but you either haven't heard it before, or haven't heard it in a while, or you haven't heard it quite like that. So what's happening is God has ordained or told us that, Our growth in Christ's likeness is a a cyclical pattern. It's a cycle of death and resurrection, of our mindset, considering ourselves dead to sin and considering ourselves alive to Christ. And when we trip and fall, we slip into old patterns, well, we need to go back to considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ, And this cycle goes on and on and on and on and on. This is also why we preach the gospel every Sunday because as Luther says, it's because I forget it every Sunday. My people forget every Sunday. So we have to continuously go through this. Some would even call it law gospel preaching. So mortification, resurrection. Uh, We never outgrow this, but God actually moves us along the journey of our spiritual life in this way. More and more death to our old self and more and more resurrection life of Christ in us. That is point two, point three the Christian's eternal life. Eternal life. So we have the first death and the second death. The first death is our physical death. Well, what is death? Death is a result of the curse of Adam's sin. Death is unnatural. It is not part of God's original design, but is the ending of the life of that thing which is corrupted or broken. Whether it's your death or your dog that got smashed by a tree branch or... Something else that dies. It's the ending of the life. This is why death is so sad. It's why it hurts those who are left behind. Because this is not part of God's original plan. The design with which he has made things. So in our hearts, we feel that this isn't the way things are supposed to be. There's something wrong with this scenario as we're standing watching Something tragic. The longing of our hearts is that goodness would dwell forever. Not a desire for sorrow and shame for 70 years and then we die. That that part of us, that image of God within us desires goodness and mercy to follow us all the days of our life. Not desiring a miserable 70 years then dying. But because of our sin, that corruption, that sin is this corruption that cannot dwell in heaven forever. This is the reason why we die, because we have sin and corruption within us. And so that has to be dealt with. It has to be put away. Why do people die? Well, people die because of sin, because of Adam's sin in Genesis 3. All have sinned, so death passed upon all men. The wages of sin is death. Now, what happens when we die? Well, there's two types of people in this world. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Those who are still in their sin and those who are forgiven of their sin. So for the Christian, when the Christian dies, death is gain. Death is actually better than what they're currently experiencing in this life. When a Christian dies, what happens when they die is they are then ushered into the presence of Christ. That death is, in the presence of Christ is not the final new creation, but nevertheless, it is real and it is in the presence of Christ. I ask, is this the heavenly worship service around the throne room of heaven that we read about in Revelation? It's certainly possible. Because that throne room of heaven, that's not the new creation. That's just what we would call heaven. And we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So for those loved ones of yours who are Christians who have died, well, they're with Christ right now but they're not yet in the new creation. Now, after death, there is a judgment day. And that judgment day has two outcomes. For the Christian, it is eternal joy. For the non-Christian, it is eternal conscious torment. Yes, I believe in hell. Yes, I believe the Bible. That's why I believe that hell is real. All people will be judged according to their deeds. The wicked will be cast into hell and the righteous will be granted heaven. The problem is nobody is righteous. So the righteous who go to heaven are in heaven, not because of their own merit, but because they are recipients of Jesus's merit, which we call grace. They've received grace in Christ and their names are written in the book of life. And the record says Trenton Hargraves as purpose, as perfect as Jesus, as sinless as Jesus. So he gets to come in. Revelation twenty twelve says, and I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and the books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So you've got your books, the books of your deeds, which says what you've done. But then there's the book of life, which has a list of the names of those written before the foundation of the world in the book of life. So we have an eternal life. Heaven is not so much one infinitely long worship service or floating on clouds playing harps. Rather, it is a new creation. Scripture describes a new heaven and a new earth with vivid imagery that is designed to remind us of Eden before the fall. So heaven is in an ultimate sense a new world like the original before the fall, but better. Now why is there the the problem of evil? If God could have just kept from sin, kept all this evil from happening, all of the sorrow and sin and shame and brokenness in this world, why did he allow that sin to first enter? Well, my very simple answer that I gave, because y'all know Chris Onitis, tall guy, great curly hair. This is the sort of thing he and I would talk about for hours back in 2017 when we were in the early days of our former church. He's like, whoa, why is theodicy, you know, the problem of evil? Why is there evil? And the best answer I could give is that it's a better story. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration is much better of a story than perfection forever. Or by a better story, what I mean is there's more glory for God. Redemption is a greater greater display of his infinite wisdom, love, and power than a story with a world where there's only perfection forever. Imagine that you went to a movie. You went to go, you paid your you know, $150 for a movie ticket at AMC Times Square. That was your ticket plus your popcorn. Um, <laughs> so you take your, you take your ticket and you go in and you sit down and they hit play on that movie and you sit there for two hours and you watch a story about some guy where everything is perfect in his life. And then two hours later, it's the end. And you walk out of that movie theater and you're like, that was so pointless. (laughs) You know, like you've heard of the series of unfortunate events. So this is a series of fortunate events. And this man's life was just one perfect thing happening after another without a shred of hardship. And you're like, that was so boring. And I'm sorry for those who want to go to Chick-fil-A tonight, and it's 925, and we're not going to make it out of here by 930, and not going to get there to 935, and then they're going to kick you out at 945, and just, sorry, this is going long. It's a better story, and it's more glory for God in redemption. It displays His infinite wisdom, love, and power. Now, that's eternal life. Why the fall? Why evil? Then there's the second death. So we had the first death, your physical death. The second death is spiritual death, but it's not an extinguishment. It is not uh, annihilationism. Rather, it is eternally dying, but never finally being extinguished. It's horrible. You don't want to go there. You don't want to experience it. So if you're hearing this message, hear this as a wake-up call that it's not too late for you to turn to Christ, to trust in Him, and to be forgiven, and to have eternal life, and to have all of the record of all of your sins wiped away, and instead to receive the perfections of Jesus Christ credited to your account." This then leads us into our second-to-last point about final justification. Is there a final justification? Well, I really, if you do, really like John Piper. And John Piper talks about final justification and that you have your salvation by grace, but heaven by works. What about that? It's wrong. It's a denial of sola fide. It's in the same category as Federal Vision. It's in the same category as New Perspectives on Paul. Federal Vision is the idea of justification by baptism. And you keep justified by faithfulness. So in that infant baptism, that baby's sins are forgiven. And then that baby stays saved by keeping on, keeping on, by being good. It's important to know that one of the key founders of this was actually Jewish and is Jewish and the dude's Jewish. And so we're trying to import Judaism into reformed theology at the Auburn Avenue Theology Conference back like 15 years ago. And now we start an entire denomination on this called the CREC. But hey, they're culture warriors. Yeah, the guys in Brooklyn. Federal vision should not be is wrong. New Perspectives on Paul by N.T. Wright. The problem is where things get confusing is you've got guys like John Piper who teaches final justification, writing books against New Perspectives on Paul, but these things are actually the same. New Perspectives on Paul is the idea that justification by faith was wrong, and instead it should be translated, you are justified by faithfulness. So you want to be right with God, you better get it together. Moving on. i just drop that and move on. Heavenly rewards. There are such things as heavenly rewards. And we do re- receive rewards according to our actions, according to our deeds. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. If you are new to... Real Protestant theology. You're like, yeah, I've been studying the five solas. I've been studying sola fide, and now I've got an R. Scott Clark T-shirt, and I'm I'm really into the Heidelberg Catechism. And we're just gonna we're gonna be as Protestant as Protestant can be. This might make you uncomfortable that that you have salvation by grace and rewards based on your works. The thing, though, is the Bible just very plainly teaches that you get rewarded according to what you do. Now, if you're uncomfortable with that, let me just push back and say, would it be unjust of God if you did all these things and he didn't reward you? I mean, he loves to give good gifts to his children. He gives you things for free all the time. So let's say that he has ordained that you're going to go through a tremendous hardship in this life and you you do and you persevere and your life is, I was at Abraham who said few and miserable were my days or something. Um, you're just like, man, my life was really bad, but I grew in the faith. The Lord used me, he used my life, but every single day was miserable and then here you arrive in heaven, and God's like, yeah, boy, come on in. Versus he looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, by the way, I have some rewards for you. And he just begins opening up trunk after trunk and case after case of rewards and crowns. And, and, and your name is going on the chart like, at, um, like paintball or laser tag or something. The Lord loves to reward his children. Now, do I know the paradigms for all that? Do I know? I don't. I don't know his scoring system, but I trust that he does. So this is my lesson. The Christian's new life, the Christian's old life, and the Christian's eternal life. Let's pray and then we'll be done. Father, I pray that you would take these things and apply them to your people and help them, encourage them, strengthen them. Lord, I thank you for the process of of studying and preparing and rehearsing these things in my own life and mind. I pray that you would use them to build up your people, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.